Our message this morning is a preparation for uh, the table. While we'll continue to look at the word and see what the Lord speaks to us, it's to turn our attention to what we are about to receive. The passage we'll be looking at this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 34, though our, our primary focus is verses 23 through 26. If you'd like to turn there, uh, I'll uh, pray while you are doing so. Our Father, we, we come with great thanksgiving this day that you have given to us and pray now that you would be at work within us in accordance with your promise, in accordance with your grace, that you who have begun a good work will continue it through. I pray that you would speak to us by your word and to our minds, that we may have understanding, but more than just uh, intellect, we pray that you would be at work within our hearts, that we may know and experience your grace and that that may manifest in our lives. So we pray that you would give us strength, not only to obey, but that you would bear fruit from within us. Renew us now, we pray, through Christ and at his table, to his glory and to our joy. We pray all things in the incomparable name of Jesus. Amen. The passage this morning, beginning our reading. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead uh, with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. The word of our God. 
relatively early in the tenure of my first pastorate. We were serving a, a small country church that had a pretty lousy reputation, and so uh, guests were few and far between. One week we had a couple that came, a sharp couple, a spiritually mature couple, came to the church, discerning whether or not this would be a place they might like to make their church home. And so Carolyn and I had them over for supper. The conversation went along. It was uh, an enjoyable time together. But then in a, in a brief lull in the conversation, our oldest child let out a roaringly loud belch. And then if the satisfied look on his face was not sufficient reason for angst, he declared, not bad manners, just good beer. It was, something, it was something that he learned from his grandfather in, in Knoxville, someone who received a call later that day. <laughs> and we were horrified. And by we, I mean Carolyn. As a dad, I was sort of proud. But anyway, that's... Um, I mean, what would these people think of us? I mean, what would they think of us if our children can't act with civilized manners at the dinner table? And if the children of the pastor can't act like civilized manners, what would they think of this church that had hired him to be the pastor? Now, fortunately, in the end, it worked out well. They had two sons of their own who they had raised, one of whom I had neglected to mention a moment ago that we had hired a month earlier to be our youth director. I suspect they didn't want a standard that they themselves might be found out wanting as, as things came up. Uh, and they were, again, spiritually mature, godly people who continue well, uh, continued through in the church. He had passed away uh, about a year ago, and, and she is uh, still active, a participant in that church. The story came to mind as I was looking at this passage, thinking of the table this morning, because in a very real sense, the Apostle Paul was addressing the Corinthians for their bad table manners. Uh, not so much in the protocols of when you're coming to the table, but the way that they approach the Lord's table. Because he begins, as in the passage that we read, in these instructions, I have nothing to commend you. And he begins to talk about several of the things that were clearly inappropriate for the body of Christ as they approach the Lord's table. First, he begins with the factions and the divisions that were in the church. And he says, look, I, I recognize that that's got to be true. That's, that certainly is true. It's not a surprise to me. I, I know you folks. And then he starts talking about people that were eating ahead of everybody else. And for that, we need to recognize what they were practicing is a little different than the way that we practice it. At that time, the church, or at least the church in Corinth, was practicing what was called a love feast or an agape feast. And so at the end of the service, they would come together and they would eat and drink uh, as we do. Uh, but people would bring, and it was more of a, a, an actual meal. And so some of the people would bring food with them, and, and it was to be, to be shared. But I guess some of them were getting hungry, so they would be munching during the service. Some of them were picking out during the service. And some of them, wanting, I guess, desperately to be, uh, be covered by the blood, they were drinking the wine so heavily during the service that they were drunk by the time they came to the Lord's table. I mean, it's actually, it, it, it would be, it'd be comical if it wasn't so sad. Well, it's still kind of comical anyway, as you, as you think about just how messed up these people must have been. And, and so Paul, he's looking at this church and the practices as they come to the Lord's table, and he's confronting them and he's instructing them as to what is the appropriate way that the believers of Jesus Christ 
should come and participate and benefit from this table that Christ has established for us. And as he instructs them, so he also instructs us because we are able to benefit from their errors and we are able to benefit from the instruction that they receive. As we look at this passage, there's a couple of things of Paul's instructions, key principles that we need to recognize and embrace as our own practices as we come before this table. Not only today, but always. Three words, three C words that are important to remember. First is communal. Second is conditional. And third uh, C word that we need to remember is contemplative. Paul instructs the church that coming to the Lord's table is communal. Paul says in verse 20, when you come together, he's talking about an assembly. And he talks about the one loaf, the one body. It's intended to be a communal thing. And he uses the word gather, and it's very intentional. The Lord's Supper is not an individual thing that individual Christians get, like a a power drink or a power bar to renew themselves. It is something that is to be practiced communally, corporately. No doubt each of us experiences different measures of grace on the basis of our own experience, basis of coming, how, how heavy is the weight of your sin? How, how, how much do you feel and experience God's grace? How, how, how focused are you and are, how are you believing and trusting in Christ? There's a different experience, at least in emotionally, as we come to the table, but it is always intended to be communal. It's for that reason it's been a while since we in this church have participated in the Lord's Supper. When we were totally scattered and we were pre-recording our services and people were watching at different times of the day and sometimes even on different days, it was totally inappropriate for us to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. On top of that, we were in a season of lamentation, which we had assumed and hoped would be very short. But we are still uh, experiencing some of that. But even as we regathered as the session, we, we thought about this. We realized but only a fraction of us, about a third, are able to are coming together. Others are participating with us but from home uh, because of their susceptibility to the virus and for whatever reasons that is best for they and their families to worship with us but not here assembled. But as time had come, we recognized that we are in need of this table. And there is a sense, at least according to the way that we've chosen to look at this, is that those who are worshiping with us, even those who are worshiping online, because it must be done at the same time that we are gathered, we are gathering together, and it's time for us to receive the Lord's benefits and the Lord's grace again. But in no way is our distance worshiping intended to minimize this important truth that the Lord's Supper is intended to be communal. It's known as communion because it's not just an individual activity. Paul says, secondly, not only is it communal, but it is conditional. Now, that might strike some as odd because we keep talking about God's unconditional grace, which speaks to our salvation that is received simply by believing, not by the status or our achievement or our being good enough. Uh, but the Lord's Supper is conditional, not in the sense of our salvation, but in the sense that whether or not we experience the benefits and the blessings that are promised here. We see that evident in the passage. Uh, look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty 
concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. I'll move down just a, a couple of verses and look at verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill and, and some have died. And, and Paul here is describing there are people that are partaking at the same time of the same meal, the same loaf, the same body, are experiencing different things. Some are experiencing the promises, the benefits, and the blessings of this table. And others are experiencing judgment and condemnation. Not because those who are experiencing the judgment and condemnation are necessarily worse people or those who are experiencing blessing are better people. But it's because those who are coming to the table and, and partaking in Paul's words in a worthy manner are therefore receiving the benefits and the promises that are associated with this table. It's important that we recognize that this table is conditional. In other words, how we come and how we approach this table determines the impact, the effect that it has upon us. It is mystical, but it is not magical. What I mean by that is that there is a very real spiritual experience that we have by coming to this table in a worthy manner and partaking of the bread and partaking of, of the cup and experiencing what God has said that he's going to experience. But it is not magical. Simply coming and partaking of the elements does nothing. It must be connected to coming in a worthy manner. It's not like when you take your vitamins. You know, you take the vitamins and there's a property within them that gets distributed throughout your body and, and you receive the benefits of them no matter what thought you give to them. Whether you even believe that they're working or not, they work in our biology. But because the Lord's Supper is mystical, it requires that we come in a worthy manner in order to receive the benefits. This is why we practice in our church something we call fencing the Lord's table. It's something that at one time, I confess, I was uncomfortable with when I was early in ministry. It's the, you see in our bulletin every time we have the Lord's Supper a, a little note that says all those who are baptized, professing believers, members of, uh, of any Bible-believing church are welcome to come to partake in the table. But by the fact that we have a note suggests that there are some that we are saying you are excluded from this table. And while that is the historic practice of not only the Reformed Church but some other traditions as well, I was uncomfortable with it. I mean, the table is a means of grace. Shouldn't everybody come? Well, except that those who participate, the benefits are conditional. And so, therefore, to simply invite everybody to come without any attention being given to the fact these instructions is inviting people to come and to partake and to experience judgment that may or may carry with it serious and even physical consequences according to what this passage teaches us. Traditionally, churches tend to go one side or the other in terms of the table. There are those who practice an open table, which is, here's the table. If you are present, come and eat, come and drink. And there is no distinction that is being met. But some such churches are inviting the unbelievers and even those who have not prepared themselves, not given thought, to come and to experience potential consequences without the warnings. 
Because of that truth, historically in Presbyterian churches, they've operated with what is known as a, a closed table. That the only ones who are able to come to the table are those who are members in good standing of a particular church or who have been examined uh, in advance by the elders of the church. And how this normally would work is the elders would make their way through the congregation in the week leading up to the Lord's Supper. They would examine everybody, ask them about the condition of their heart, as lead people in confession as they themselves confessed and be remind them and, and, uh, of the gospel. And then after that conversation, they would be given a token of which they could come to the table so that those who are distributing the elements would know they have been approved for the table. Now, that's not a bad system in some ways, particularly when people stayed and didn't travel very much and you never had anybody new showing up to your church. But what about the people who showed up to a church, didn't know this? What about if here in Williamsburg we were to practice a table like that and those who are our guests, who are believers, godly people, showed up to town yesterday, came to worship with us today, they would be excluded from participating in the Lord's table. And by excluding them, even though they were believers in good standing in their churches, we would be declaring that we were a church that was different than the church that they are members in. When there is only one church, because there's only one faith, and because there's only one baptism, and there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. So in our tradition, what we do, and our practice is, we do what we call fencing the table. We remind you and remind ourselves each time we come to the table of God's requirements, what it means to come in a worthy manner and invite those who meet those qualifications to come to the table. And we give warnings to those, to, to everybody, so that those who recognize that they don't meet the qualifications, they're not coming in a worthy manner, they have the option and the opportunity to refrain from the table. Now, the fence we put is not real high, and people hop it on a regular basis. And that's okay. That's between you and God. It's not ours to police because the table doesn't belong to us. The table belongs to Jesus Christ, and his grace is greater than our ability to understand it. But we do lay before you that God has said the benefits of this table are conditional. So we see that the table is communal. We see that it is conditional. But there's another principle we need to consider. And it's related to the question that inevitably, if you're paying attention, that you're asking. Well, what does it mean to come in a worthy manner? I mean, if, if we only receive the benefits, if we come in a worthy manner, if we don't come in a worthy manner, and we can potentially experience judgment, discipline, what does it mean to come in a worthy manner? And the third C is this table is contemplative. What I mean by that is Paul calls attention to the individual believer and the church as a whole as we come to the table. Every time we come to the table, our attention needs to be given diligently in two different directions. Paul says, first, we ought to examine ourselves before we come to the table. Look at, at verse 28, right after he talks about whoever comes in an unworthy manner. But verse 28, let a person examine himself, and then so eat and bread, uh, the bread and, and, and drink the cup in a worthy manner. In other words, we need to look at our own lives in totality. We look at our actions in the weeks preceding up, coming to the table. Have we done anything outside and in conflict with God's commands? We look at our relationships. Are we harboring bitterness? Are we antagonistic? Are we 
Are, are we, have, we, uh, uh, have we done something to harm someone else? And we haven't gone to seek forgiveness for that. Do we have an attitude? Are our desires or our attitudes in conflict with the grace that is ours? In other words, we want the grace, but do we extend that grace? Do we have desires that we know are out of order and therefore we are harboring sin in our lives? We are called to examine ourselves before we come to this table. And the reality is if we examine ourselves properly, we're all going to find different measure of sin, but we will all find sin in our lives. Now, that seems contrary to coming to the table in a worthy manner, but the reality is there's nothing we can do to perfect ourselves. Coming to this table reminds us of our standing and reroots us in the grace of God. And so coming to this table, feeling the reality of our own sin, then prepares us for our second focus. Not only are we to examine ourselves, but then we are to, using Jesus' words, remember Christ. Because even in the institution at the Lord's Supper that Paul brings out in this particular passage, He says this, this is my body, it's broken for you. Now, why was his body broken? Because he bore the punishment that we deserve. He bore our sins, and therefore he was crushed for our iniquities. His body broken for you. And his blood was shed, because without the the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But his blood was poured out during the Passover, marking everyone who believes as belonging to Christ and in cleansing us from our sin. And we... Remember Jesus crucified and then resurrected that gave victory. Those who come recognizing the weight of their own sin, feeling that weight, feeling the guilt of their own sin, are more likely to experience that weight lifted from them than those who don't have any examination of themselves. We come before God freely, and yet we come recognizing that we are in need of being cleansed, but God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And so when we come to the table having examined ourselves and then remembering what Christ has done, we experience God's benefit. Now, there is still some challenge in that word remember. Because to our Western ears, as theologian Michael Horton says, we tend to think of something remembered as bringing to mind some past reality something that is no longer a present reality. Now, there is a sense that we are doing that. We're bringing to mind the cross that happened once in time and is not repeated because it's not necessary to be repeated. Christ Jesus died once for all. But that, I, that mindset that we're only talking about a memorial of something that happened in the past and that we remember that is really not in line with the Jewish thought that both the early believers would have understood and that we need to embrace. And we do in some ways, in certain aspects, but somehow it just doesn't always seem to apply. We don't think of it when it comes to coming to this table. There is a a Puritan named John Flavel who talks about remembrance, and he says there's two different ways to remember. There is one that he calls the speculative and the transient remembrance, which is calling to mind something that happened in history. Jesus died, Jesus rose. Those are important facts. Those are truths, and they will not happen again. So that is history. And so when we come to the table, we are certainly reminded of those facts that are history and no longer present reality. But the promise of this table is a present blessing, a participation, we're told, when we come in faith. 
And Flavel's second way of remembering is this. He calls it affectionate remembrance. In other words, it is the effect on our affections, our, 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 our hearts. And he says this, is it's feeling the powerful present impressions upon our heart. In other words, it's, it's what Paul talks about when we participate in this, which, which again seems hard, except when we put it in another analogy that all of us understand. Think of it in terms of your wedding anniversary, those who are, are married. Now each year your wedding anniversary comes around and you remember the date. You are wise to remember the date. You, I hope you remember the date. And we celebrate that. Now, as good as it is to know that we have a wedding date and we can remember the date, that's not really the heart behind the matter. We don't have a wedding date and remember, oh yeah, I got married once. That's not the purpose of the wedding anniversary. But the wedding anniversary is rightly recognized when that date comes around and we remember that was the beginning of something. We were wedded that day, but we are married continually. And so the remembrance of the, the experience of the wedding day has continued benefits because we're reminded that we have been made one. And then we have that renewal that we celebrate and celebrate culturally. In the same way, when we come to this table, we aren't just remembering something that happened in the past, though that's an important reality. But by partaking in this table, having examined ourselves and being reminded of what Christ has done, there is a present reality, a present benefit, and we are participating and receiving God's grace when we come. And that's what it means to come in a worthy manner. And so we come to the table, the table God has prepared for you, it is a table of God's grace. It is a table of God's blessing. It is a table of benefit for all of God's people that not only reminds us of his grace, but it renews us in his grace as well.